The Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast features people from the real estate community sharing real stories about their struggles, pains, and even losses during their own real estate journey. We share these real experiences so you can learn from them and build a successful journey of your own. Now, here's your host, Cody Lewis, one of the managing partners at Vindu Capital, located in Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited to have you back, but let me tell you, I'm even more excited about our special guest today. He is a real estate syndicator, a financial mentor, and the founder of SimplePassiveCashflow.com, Lane Kawaoka. Lane, thanks for joining us. How are you today? Hey, you're doing good. Aloha, everybody. Yeah, that, aloha. Thanks. And so from that, Lane may join one of our distinguished unofficial prizes, if you will, is long distance guests or one of the most long distance guests we have. So Lane, just in case those that are watching and listening at home, if they haven't found you quite yet, we always love starting out with a good origin story, where you're from, how you got into real estate, and what do you find yourself doing these days? Yeah, so I, I kind of walk this linear path that I think a lot of high income earners go or brainwashed to go to school, study hard, work for the man and put all your money into the 401k, often more than 10, 20% of your salary, and then buy a house to live in. And I went to school up at the University of Washington, became an engineer, started to work and bought a house to live in. But then I got off that linear path and by buying a house to live in and renting it out. And this is well before the days of Toro. This is back in 2009. And I just got this taste of cash flow. And I realized, well, if I just keep doing this again and again and again, you know, it wasn't that hard for me to save fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 for a down payment. And then, you know, I just realized, well, if I just keep doing this, I'll be able to quit my day job that I don't like as an engineer pretty quickly, you know, certainly, you know, under a decade. So that was kind of what I focused on from 2009 to 2015, amassing over 11 rentals. I got out of like investing in the state of Washington because it's a blue state. And, you know, the rent to value ratios just weren't very good. So I started to focus more on like flyover states like Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis. And then that's where I kind of transitioned into apartment syndications as I became more of an accredited investor. You know, as most accredited investors know, that's owning little rental properties, getting a few hundred bucks of cash flow per property. That's gonna not going to change your life other than make you go crazy with all the ten tenants, termites, and toilets or dealing with property managers that aren't really effective. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, you know, that's transitioned to today, 8,500 rental units, $1.2 billion of assets under ownership. But but yeah, yeah, where, where, where should we dive in? Well, you tell me because, you know, I, I love the story. We all, we love a great origin story here, but I love the fact that, you know, we see it kind of similarly for some folks that are jump into the multifamily side, especially the syndication side is it's hard to scale on the single family, whether you're flipping or, or leasing or whatever it may be, it, it's really hard to scale. So I love the fact that you, you made the jump. It sounds like you're doing incredibly successful. Obviously, I love the stuff that you're putting out. So I can't imagine, though, that everything's just been rainbows and butterflies along the way. I'm sure there have been a couple of bumps and bruises, scrapes, cuts, if you will. So which one really kind of comes to mind that that made maybe made the most profound impact on, on what you do today or, or a philosophy you now have coming out of that situation? Yeah, I mean, in my first investment life, more as a passive investor, I would say like a lot of the mistakes were, you know, just paying, trying to pay off debt. You know, I would switch my mortgage from a 30 year down to a 15 year because I got like, you know, brainwashed by all the other stuff of like, well, look at all the interest you're paying less, which 
you know, soon after I realized, after I interacted with more credit investors, that that's just not what the wealthy do. They don't look at deals like that. And so, you know, I've made mistakes like that, that kind of made the timeline go along a little longer than I'd like. And that's how we kind of educate a lot of folks. And it, what it really is, is getting yourself around the right people. But as far as you know, getting more into the active role, which, you know, leading syndication deals, you know, a lot of the, the hardest deals are the ones you start off with, you know, they're under 100 unit, the, the 30 unit, the 100 unit. Those are like kind of the most exposed properties. Also, because you're typically buying crappier properties, the class C tenants, class C properties, 1950 to 1970s a little bit more wear and tear or deferred maintenance on those assets. But we kind of, tr- we, we kind of quickly built up a track record and got out of that. And, you know, lately we've been kind of born the B class and more development, the new greenfield type of developments. So for those that may be listening and maybe they're, they're part of that journey that you you've already gone through early on in your career that, that are looking at some of those C class assets that are maybe, 50s, 70s built kind of thing. What would you tell them to look out for that you saw in in your journey that that made you jump to B? But what did you see that you're like, man, I wish I would have known this, or if I could tell somebody, I would warn them about this or tell them to look out for these things. Well, I mean, I think they in the back of their head, you know, you logically understand that these types of properties are going to come with more headache. But I think what it really comes down to is, you know, if you get a bad property, your delinquency is pretty high. I mean, normally, you know, these apartments, you usually run at like a three to 5% economic vacancy rate where you have, you know, three to 5% of deadbeats. But in some of these rougher areas, I mean, we've had some of delinquency go up to like 20% where, you know, out of 10 units or out of a hundred units, you have 20 people not paying. Sure. So, you know, that's why it's important to be very conservative on your economic occupancy forecast and not just assume, yeah, you can have the property 95% occupied, but if, you know, a good fraction of them aren't paying, what good is it? If anything, it's the worst of all your scenario, because now you have a bunch of CD tenants around. So I think that's something that not a lot of people, they understand that that's potential. They nod their head, but you know, a lot of these things, you don't really learn until you go through the experience and now not you can make a lot of money with that stuff, right? It's, it's a lot of hair on it, but you know, personally, that's just not, you know, once you get yourself to a certain level, you're kind of looking to make easier money or conservatively that, you know, is put you in a better position if there's kind of a weak spot in the economy. Sure. sure. Well, and I think to that point, you can really make numbers, do whatever you want on a spreadsheet. But I, I think what I'm hearing you say, there, there's a big difference between your Excel spreadsheet and getting in there and actually operating the property. And and, and that difference can, can make or break the whole investment strategy. Um, you know, I hear you on the, the ones that are like sub 30 units, you know, if you had a 10 door and you're 20% vacancy, that's two people. Or if you, they're delinquent, like, are you getting them out? Do you have a property manager? You know, that all these things go into your underwriting. You got to figure out how that's going to work and everything on, on what exactly is your investment strategy for those types of things. But um, I would imagine from an economies of scale, like you were saying, getting into things that are maybe a little bit more conservative or easier to, to manage would be why you jumped into the B class properties. 
Yeah, and and larger assets, right? Over two hundred units to get the economies of scale. I mean, we have, you know, like some of our Phoenix assets. You know, they are smaller. And we've mm-hmm. got like a twenty-seven unit out there, and when you have two or three people skip, right? That's ten percent, right? And on a four hundred units, that'd be forty units, forty zero, right? I mean, big difference on the spawner property is kind of just like wave your hands up in the air and it's like, well, it, it is what it is. Let's let's power through this. Or on the larger assets, you can kind of see it, predict it, just just you know the way numbers work. Um, I don't, I forget what. Poisson distribution it was in my industrial engineering days and probability and statistics. But like, you know, it's just, you're not going to get super surprised on those larger assets. But, you know, as much as you say, you know, it's like go out and do it. But, you know, some of this stuff can be mitigated on your pre underwriting, right? Like I see a lot of guys assuming the rents are going to go up four or 5%. That ain't happened, dude. No, you know, like, you, wait a second now. You're saying that rents aren't always going to go up like they have been the last few years? That's not a thing? Yeah. I mean, like one of the, you know, people actually get into the world of underwriting. You know, you've usually got like a every year you put in like a, a number between zero and 5% on how much you think the rents are going to go up naturally with the pace of inflation. You know, it has nothing to do with the market, but it's, well, it has nothing to do with, you know, your force appreciation. But it's more like the general state of the economy. And you know, we've always kind of taken the approach of using anywhere from two to three percent, three percent for like a hot market. But you know, you see a lot of guys out there just trying to sharpen the pencil to make the numbers work or to, you know, to get that magical eighty to hundred percent return in five years for passive investors. And you know, it's kind of like one of those things where you know, it's you can show whatever you want on a page to get to trick investors into your deal, but you know, I always tell investors, well, get educated, learn, learn what are the assumptions that you should spot check. You know, just like when you buy a car, you're not going to know everything about cars. I don't know much about cars, but I know enough to look for this or that and then take it to a professional, of course. But I mean, sure. that's what I think all past investors should do. They should they should know what should be the good assumption for the annual rent increases. They should understand the concept of the reverse and cap rate. You know, when is it? Why should it be expanding to be more conservative? These are simple things that all passive investors should understand and what we educate. But you know, at the end of the day, they need to understand that they're not professional underwriters and it may make sense. I mean, sometimes we'll bring in on a third-party underwriter just to spot check us. Or when mm-hmm. I'm looking at a deal from a passive investor perspective, I'll do that, especially if it's outside the asset class that I'm like a little unfamiliar, like hotels or mobile home parks. That's what I'll do. But for some reason, most passive investors just kind of take what the sponsor says as, you know, gospel, which I don't know. I mean, if they've got more than a a billion dollars of assets under ownership, you know, how bad can they be, I guess. But I think that's the problem with most passive investors. It's you can't verify the track record or experience of the sponsor and the operator is the issue. Yeah. I, I would even argue, and I'm not saying there, there's a ton of bad operators out there, but I think you really, as a passive investor, also need to look at each deal. So, you know, especially if you're exiting one deal and 1031ing into another deal, you know, while you may really like that operator, is that next deal really as good as the one you left? Is that one a really good investment to put your money? I would argue, especially in where we're at right now, especially with interest rates continuing to climb as wherever we're at in 2022, that you know you really need to look at the deal on a deal by deal basis. I would I would 
not just arbitrarily and blindly trust the operator that, hey, we left this one deal. This next one's going to be just as good, if not better than the last one. You, To your point, look at the underwriting, understand it, and then make your evaluation from there. Now, you may trust the the operator and you like them, um, but I would argue even if they do have a ton of assets under management, look at each deal. Make sure it's still meeting the criteria that you have as a passive investor, as a good investment for your strategy. I would still say, you know, like most people listening are probably falling into the bucket of they just get frozen, right? Most passive investors, when they don't understand things, they don't do anything. So the worst you can be doing is doing nothing right now and have your money just lose 9.1%. I would say, consider what else are you doing? If you're still in the stock market and stuff like that, you know, just maybe better off going into some random real estate deal because it's real estate at the end of the day. And as long as you work with honest operators that aren't going to steal your money, you should do still much better than the alternative in the retail investment market. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I still have some assets tied up in the market and I I dare open that account and look at what it's been doing over the past, you know, even month, right? We had a little run up recently and then, you know, now it's all the way back down. So it's, it, to your point, I think real estate is a great vehicle for that sort of thing. And it's it's much better and at least a little bit more stable than a lot of the other investments retail investors are going to make. I still argue, you know, just take a look at it. And to your point, I love it. Really understand at a high level what the operators are telling you for their underwriting and have a general understanding of what they're talking about. So you're not just taking them blindly because there's a lot of great salespeople out there that aren't always maybe the underwriting isn't as clean as maybe what we thought. You know what I mean? So it's uh, take a look, understand it, really understand what you're getting into at a high level before just dumping everything into it. But uh, Lane, any anything else that comes to mind as your journey from switching, especially from the rental side over to the multifamily side that sticks out to you as, as a pain or a struggle that you really had kind of going through that shift? Well, yeah. I mean, like, like you exactly said, I, it's hard to verify the track record and experience of people. You don't know until you get into bed with them or you put money into this deal or that deal. And, you know, most accredited investors that are experienced, they'll tell you like they don't they don't see themselves as professional underwriters. They don't have that that viewpoint. So how do they decide where to put their hard earned money? Well, they build a network with other purely passive accredited investors and kind of in a way follow their tackle into the end zone in a way. Some of my best investors that, you know, they come through through referrals, they've got a lot of money. They've been investing a lot, but they'll be the first to tell you that they're an idiot and they just follow that they're smart friend, what they do. So it's the saying, your your network is your net worth. And I think this is where a lot of people who, you know, move from non-accredited to investor or non-accredited to accredited investor in their investment career, like kind of like myself, Right, we got we got there from being a little smarter than the average bear looking at the numbers, but there are a lot of people who were already accredited that had the peer group that ex- greatly expanded and went to two point to three point because they they trusted their immediate inner circle, and that inner circle just happened to be investing in with the right people too at the same time. So I think that's the hard thing for a lot of folks, kind of like myself, who wasn't born with a lot of money, didn't start off with very much. Um, where it's kind of a reboot, you know, in a way you have to schmooze with other purely passive accredited investors to kind of take it to the next level, to build a sustainable investment portfolio. Yep. 
I totally agree. Well, Lane, I I can't thank you enough for jumping on board. I think everything you said, folks, go back and listen to this one again. I think Lane gave us a ton of knowledge on here. There's a, a few key points I, I would hone in on, especially if, especially if you're looking to invest passively. Uh, understanding things at a high level and some of the key terms is going to really differentiate you and understanding who might be a good operator versus bad. So Lane, that's probably a good enough spot to wrap up as ever. I, I, again, I can't thank you enough for joining us. For those that want to work with you, invest with you, learn from you in the future, where's the best place people can find you at? Um, they can check out simplepassivecashflow.com. If you like podcasts, passive real estate investing via Simple Passive Cashflow on iTunes, Google Play. And if you're, if you're kind of a mindless YouTube junkie, I can check out our new channel, Rich Uncle, kind of talk to some of the younger folks out there about these alternative investing ideas and alternative wealth building activities. Cool. I, I absolutely love it. And who's not a, a mindless YouTube person? Every once in a while, you just got to get on there and go down the rabbit hole. I, I am. I just tell them whatever they bring to me, I watch. And I, it seems to work thus far. There you go. <laughs> the YouTube gods are strong. <laughs> the algorithm is crazy. Yeah. Lane, again, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure, sir. Thanks. Absolutely. And thanks, everyone, for listening and watching at home. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast with Cody Lewis. Be sure to subscribe today on your favorite podcasting platform so you can catch every episode of the Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast.